I did wonder when I um, when Andy sent me the passage and it had Revelation 12, uh, Revelation 22 that said, "Don't add anything to this word, or you'll get the, the plagues in this scroll poured down on you." I did think, is he make, is he trying to tell me something here? Hopefully that won't be the case. Good morning, church. Good morning. That is a wonderful welcome. Thank you. I've no idea the churches that you preach in and you say good morning and you good morning. Thank you very much for having me. My name's Matt, uh, and I want to start off by saying thank you very much for having me here today. Um, it's a real privilege to be here to uh, land your series on the Nicene Creed. Uh, we're going to talk today about the importance. Oh, it's so very different. I'm going to have a crick in my neck by the end of this. If I don't look at you for any period of time, I'm really sorry. We're going to talk today about the importance of church, uh, more particularly the importance of a united church. Uh, we're going to talk about what that means um, by leaning into the sign-off of the Nicene Creed, leaning into the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Uh, then we're going to slip into the Hebrews passage to look at the, the how. How do we practice unity? And then we're going to land in Revelation to reflect on the why we should be practicing this. So we've got about two hours, something like that. So nothing much to cover. We'll start off with a bit of interaction, uh, which I always think is good fun. Good, good. I can see some mental lunges going on. Do you think, between us all, we could name all 12 of the disciples? Shout some out. No, Andy, you're, you're paused. Okay, You're muted for a few seconds. Because if you can't name them, we're all in trouble, right? <laughs> so just shout some out. Andrew, brother of Simon, thank you. Someone's, <laughs> I can see someone going through a Bible at the back. That's always a good start as well. James, Bartholomew, Peter, John, Judas Iscariot, and the other Judas, thank you. The other Judas who changed his name to Thaddeus. I never know. I always wonder if he changed his name to Thaddeus before or after <laughs> the, uh, the betrayal. Thomas, a couple more. James, um, we've got Simon the Zealot, and I think, uh, and Matthew. Yeah, that's what I've got. I don't know if we've said them all. We've said several, haven't we? So is there James, James and John, sons of Zebedee? I think we said those. I found out this morning that James and John, Jesus called them the sons of thunder, which I thought was pretty cool. I think that's in Luke's gospel. Amazing. I'm going to talk about two of those disciples very quickly. Uh, the two we nearly forgot, actually. First up, Matthew, the tax collector, also known as Levi. So as a tax collector, Matthew, he was a Jew, and he'd thrown his hat in with the Roman authorities. He was detested. He was hated, not only by the Jews, but pretty much by everyone apart from the Romans. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has watched The Chosen. It's, a, it's like a, a TV show that tells the gospel. It's quite historically accurate. I quite like it. But the way they depict Matthew getting across the city just before Jesus calls him is he hides in the back of a cart under a blanket so that no one can see him before he gets to be locked behind a grill guarded by a Roman soldier so he can collect everyone's taxes. He was hated, despised by the Jews, by pretty much everyone apart from the Romans. And the other disciple I want to talk about is Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were fanatical. They were a fanatical religious sect, very similar to the Pharisees, but absolutely radical in their hatred and opposition to Roman rule. They were terrorists. The Zealots were terrorists. That was how they um, rebelled against the Roman rule. Simon and Matthew couldn't be more different. 
You've got opposite ends of the spectrum in their ideologies, their value systems, pretty much everything about their lives. Matthew, a tax collector, worked for Rome. Simon, a zealot, passionately hated Rome and everything about it. Matthew, hated by the Jews and the Pharisees. Simon, loved by the Jews and the Pharisees. Simon, a political freedom fighter. Matthew, a traitor. Knowing all of that, knowing all of these things, how could two men from such opposite starting points, how could they serve together and work on the same team? How could they sit around the table? How could they walk next to each other, share bread and wine together, sit next to one another, listening to the teaching of Jesus? It seems impossible for us today to think, how could they possibly coexist in that intimate environment? The idea of a united church is great, isn't it? You know, but with so many things pulling us apart, if I just say the words LLF and sexuality, that's one huge thing at the moment that's, that, that's trying to pull the church apart. How can this united church ever realistically occur? How can Simon and Matthew, a zealot and a tax collector, ever work together? And the answer, of course, is Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about today. So that's good news. <laughs> so unity is not the same as uniformity. Let's cover the what. To be united doesn't mean we all have to be dressed the same or walking in the same manner, but it does require us to be pulling in the same direction, treating each other with respect and tolerating each other's differences. I believe in a God that is three in one, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no question that those three separate and independent Godheads are different from one another. They are all God, but the Father is not the Son, Jesus, who is not the same as Holy Spirit. They're not uniform, but they are undoubtedly in unity. In John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus prays for all believers. He prays that all of the believers may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And then in Peter's first letter to the church, chapter 3, verse 8, Peter encourages the early church to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We're not called to be uniform, but we are called to be united, just as the Father and the Son are united. And the sign-off of the Nicene Creed, that we are one holy Catholic and apostolic church, is not an accident. It's not an accident. It's exactly what Emperor Constantine was aiming for when he called together this Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. That was the whole point, was to end with this unity. There was intense and lengthy disagreement over what wording to use in the creed. And even once it was set out, what that wording actually meant. But it was never the point or intention of the council to be perfectly uniform and perfectly aligned. The overriding motive was to secure the widest possible measure of agreement within the church. That was the point of what Constantine was trying to do. And when it came to signing the creed in support of its wording, Constantine didn't bar the door to anyone. He said, anyone who wants to sign this creed, come and sign it. But if you want to sign this, 
you have to tolerate one another's differences and you have to submit to the creed. Those are the requirements. So if you want to come and sign this, please do, but only if you're going to submit to what it says and tolerate one another. Not a need for uniformity, but a need for unity. So what does it mean? What does the creed mean when it states carefully and plainly that we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church? First off, these statements affirm that the church is essential. The church is the body of Christ, but it has never been and will never be until Jesus comes back a perfect or pure instrument. But what the creed does do is it affirms that the church is, in all of its failings, the chosen instrument to which all who believe in Jesus the Messiah, in Jesus the Christ, all who seek to follow him as Lord and Savior, belong. We all belong to that church. When the creed declares our need to be one church, it emphasizes our call to unity. The oneness of the Trinity is diverse in its communion with one another. It's not uniformity that is demanded. The call to be holy means that the church has a vital role in witnessing to the power and the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. The Hebrew word for holy is kodesh, which in very simple terms means to be set apart for a specific purpose. Kodesh, to be set apart for a specific purpose. That's what it means to be holy. The church is called to be holy, to be set apart, to embody a difference from the world that can be seen and replicated. So that's one holy. How about Catholic? To confess that the church is Catholic is to express that it is worldwide or universal. Being part of the Catholic church has nothing to do with the Pope. I remember when I came to Jesus, I came to Jesus quite late in life as a 27 year old, and I was sat in church with my wife, a lifelong evangelical Christian, saying I was full of gusto as well I'd been a Christian a couple of months and I was really really jumping in we were doing the Nicene Creed and I was reading it out and I I sort of stumbled over the word Catholic as I believe in one holy Catholic (laughs) and I looked at my wife and she just very having patiently led me to Jesus out of the corner of her mouth just went not the Romans I was like, okay, not the Romans. So, no, that's a problem. You know, we all believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, but it's nothing to do with the Pope. It's being a Catholic church is a reminder that the church's unity lies in its variety, its variety of locations, languages, ethnicities, races, denominations, whether we are Protestant or Catholic, whether we are charismatic or traditional, whether we are conservative or progressive, if we all profess the same love of Jesus, we are all part of the universal Catholic with a small c church. Finally, apostolic. The church is to remain apostolic in both a traditional and a prophetic sense. Apostolic tradition or apostolic succession is is all about the continuity of the teachings and morals of the apostles as revealed to them, as taught to them by Jesus. That is what it comes back to, as passed on down through the generations, through the church's teachings. The faith set out at Nicaea embodied the truth which had been believed from the beginning. That's what all the church fathers say. 
Athanasius, who was an, an early church father, he was at the Council of Nicaea. And one of the, church, the chief defenders of the Trinity, he declared that the council, all the council had done was ratify the teaching which Christ had bestowed and which the apostles had proclaimed. Remembering, of course, that the New Testament didn't exist at the time of the Council of Nicaea. It hadn't been canonized. It wasn't a book the way we know it. It was canonized about 70 or 80 years later. All of the letters, all of the Gospels, they'd all been written sometime between 60 and 100 AD. So they were well circulated. All of the churches knew and understood the Gospels and the letters, but not as the New Testament, as the teachings of the apostles, as the apostolic teachings that were being passed on. So the church is essential in being apostolic, in passing on the teachings of the apostles to the generations to come, understanding it and passing it on, tempered by the prophetic teachings that we continue to enjoy through the power of Holy Spirit. The sign-off from the creed is amazing. It's so simple, but it's so complicated. It's a wonderful reminder of how it doesn't matter what whirlwinds are going on around us. It doesn't matter where the world might be trying to pull us or, or what level of disagreement we are going through with our, our loved ones, our neighbors, our brother and sisters in Christ. Whatever level of disagreement we're going through, we're never alone in our faith. Not only do we always have Jesus with us, we are also always part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So that's the what. What is it? when we say one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. What about the how? Let's look at the Hebrews passage. I wonder if we could have the Hebrews passage back on the screen. Thanks, Andy. Tom, okay, I just learned that everyone's name was Andy, so I just started calling everyone Andy. Um, thanks, Tom. So we're at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. If you've in your church Bible, it's, I think, page 1143. Is that right? Thank you. Um, I do recommend having it open. I think it's always good to have the Bible open, um, or just in life, generally. <laughs> um, page 1143. Now, this, this isn't a preach about the letter to the Hebrews, but for a bit of context, this is a letter probably preached as a sermon written by an unknown author, clearly a Jew, probably a well-established church leader, to the church sometime around 60 or 70 AD, so about 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And it has some incredible teaching throughout this sermon, uh, some very inaccessible teaching for us with no knowledge of Second Temple Judaism, but some incredible teaching nonetheless. And this section that we're looking at in chapter 10 is headed, A Call to Persevere in Faith. Perfect. The church is essential. We want to strive for unity. Here is a chunk of guidance from a first century teacher, a first century teacher who in all likelihood hung out and knew John, James, Paul. You know, he's writing this in 60 AD. He probably knew these guys. Paul was writing a lot of his letters in 60 AD. We don't know who wrote this book, but probably he knew John, James, and Paul. He might even have known Jesus. It's only 30 years after Jesus' death. But this guy is giving us some help on how to do this. And the section starts at verse 19 with one of my favorite words in the New Testament. Therefore. Therefore means that everything that's gone before has led to this point. 
So all of what's gone on in chapters 5 to 10 has brought us to this. And the author doubles down, summarizes chapters 5 to 10 in the few words we can see on the screen, and uses another of my favorite words, since. Because if we have a since, then we get a then. We know what the cause is of the then. Since X happened, then we have Y. So since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that is, into the very presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up through the curtain that is his, Jesus' body. And verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus, then. And you'll see the writer gives us three things we should do. Verses 22, 23, and 24, that all very helpfully start with the words, let us. Since Jesus let us, verses 22 to 24. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is a reference to baptism, right? To pointing towards the reality of our hearts having been made clean by Jesus. Even though our hearts are filthy and sinful, we are now able to draw near to God because of what Jesus has done in making us clean. So number one on the how we go about maintaining the essential presence of the church and striving for unity, number one is draw nearer to God. Spend more time in God's presence, in scripture, in prayer. Verse 23, since Jesus let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. The hope we profess is the truth and story of the gospel and the apostolic teachings. We're being encouraged to hold unswervingly to that because that truth, that story, it's a bit weird. It's slippery. You know, the world, everything about the world wants to pull us away from Jesus and the story of this man who was the son of God, the incarnate God, died on the cross for our sins so that we can be clean. It's a bit weird, and the world wants to pull us away from it. But we can trust that. We can trust that truth, trust that faith, and hold unswervingly to the hope we profess in Christ. So number one, let us draw nearer to God, spend more time with God. Number two, hold tight to the truth we know. Verse 24, since Jesus... Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. Keep meeting together to encourage one another, to help one another continue to grow closer to God. I don't know if you've been a Christian one day or a hundred years. It doesn't matter. We all have more to learn about God. The Bible is living and breathing word, and it wants to teach us something new every time we come to it. And we improve that by keeping on meeting together, encouraging one another. We need to be vitally plugged into a church community. There's no, there should be no dilly-dallying around the edges. If you want to get involved, get involved. That's what the teacher is saying here. I don't know if you guys do small groups or life groups or, or midweek groups, but if you're, if you're not in one and you want to be in one, speak to Andy. Get 
involved. Be intentional in growing and challenging one another. And it doesn't have to be a midweek group. Jesus tells us that whenever two or three or more gather in my name, I am with them there. Meet up with other Christians and draw one another closer to God. Let's practice that. Let's do that in our lives. Keep getting involved intentionally with the community of Jesus. The teacher is telling the church to meet intentionally, to stir each other up, to help one another, to hold fast, and encourage one another in drawing near to God. We need the patterns and processes to help us do that. We need Christ's body. We need the church because that's what stops us from failing at all of these things all the time. We will get it wrong all the time. But if we are part of the church, the church will help us come back to Jesus time and time again. And what I love about this passage is it's all of it is because of Jesus. All of it is since Jesus, therefore all of these things are possible. Because of what Jesus has done, laying his life down on the cross, one perfect sacrifice, bringing us back into a constant and never-ending, no questions asked relationship with God. So we've got the what. One holy Catholic and apostolic church, an essential church. We have to maintain it. We have to strive for unity within it. We have the how. We do this by drawing near to God, by holding tight to the truth of the gospel, and by meeting together regularly, encouraging one another, all made possible because of what Jesus has done. And so the why. Why bother? Why bother? Jesus has already done it all. Why bother? The why is both the most straightforward and the most complicated question. And it can be very simply summarized in four words. God asks us to. God asks us to. God loves us so much. God loves us so much that he created us so that he could be with us. Walking in the Garden of Eden with us. That's If you go back to Genesis 1, God made us for his enjoyment to walk in the garden with us. We, humankind, we messed that up. We're the reason we're not in the garden anymore. But God still promises to make it all new. Still promises to share eternal life with us in the new creation, in the new Eden. Do you ever think, I know we're going to get to Revelation in a second and I'm going off script here, but have you ever paused, you know, switched your phone off, sat there in your room and just thought, that's bananas. That is utterly mind-blowingly incredible we messed everything up and god has put plans in place so that we can be in paradise in the new eden with him forever 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 it's massive how much love is that more than i can possibly imagine and we know how good that's going to be because Revelation tells us what it's going to be like. Revelation 21 verse 3 says that God's dwelling place will be among the people. He's going to live with us, dwell with us in new creation. We will be his people and God himself will be with us and be our God. In Revelation verse 4, 21 verse 4, it says there will be no more death. Verse 6, to the thirsty I will give water without cost. 
In Revelation 22, verse 14, we see that we will have the right to the tree of life. And verse 17, Jesus promises us the free gift of the water of life. You know, there's so much imagery back to the Garden of Eden because that's where we're going to be. We'll be in eternity with God, with free access to the tree of life. That promise we have of eternal life in the new creation, living forevermore side by side with God. No more death, no more disease, no more sin, no more fear, just beautiful new creation. Not because we've earned it, not because we've done something that got us a tick in the right box, but simply because God loves us and hopes that we will love him back. And if we truly want to love him back, then we should do what he asks us to. And we should work towards a united church. That is the why we should care about this. Love is the why. Is unity easy? No. Is unity easy? No. Is forgiveness easy? Are we going to mess up on the way through? all the time do we have to achieve these things by trying harder or by loving harder no <laughs> well we should always love harder you're right but we don't have to do these things by trying more by loving more we do these things through the reconciliatory power of jesus it is only through that reconciliatory power of jesus that simon the zealot a terrorist who hated rome and matthew a tax collector who stood for Rome and acted on behalf of Rome, it is only through Jesus that those two could work together side by side. Knowing their differences, knowing how much they would not have got on, Jesus called them both. He said, I want you and I want you. You're part of my 12 team. It's the power of Jesus that allowed both Simon and Matthew to set aside their differences, to repent, forgive, reconcile, and be united. Not through their own strength, but only in Jesus. If Jesus can bring those two together and then look at what they achieve for his kingdom, imagine what we can do for his church if we trust him, seek his will, stand up, and be brave when he asks us to be brave. Wherever we are, whatever our hang-ups are with other parts of the church, maybe, just maybe, we need to give them up to Jesus. Sounds easy, right? Maybe, just maybe, we need to stop putting them up as barriers. Start walking in step as one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. Someone's got to go first. Maybe God's asking you to go first. We may not like that idea. We may not want to strive for unity with people who believe things that we think are manifestly wrong. But I, I for one, look forward to the day when all the children of God from every tribe, every tongue, every communion around the world can fellowship together around a table in the new earth. Then, although perhaps not until then, we will finally be one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Amen.